0: Jack Rupel, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned
1: in to episode 3.13 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Man, it's hard to believe that it's already the middle of March. Time sure does fly when you're busy riding pow. It's certainly been a pretty historic last couple of weeks in Colorado. Check out the CAIC website to see some pictures of impressive avalanches of historic scale. I hope everyone continues to stay safe out there in work or play. Let me know what you're thinking of the show. Send me your feedback to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or find a contact link from the website www.theavalanchehour.com. While you're there, check out links to other episodes and contributor bios. I have to admit I've been slacking on the website lately. I will update the contributor bio page as soon as things slow down a bit for me. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Today's episode features Jack Rupel. Jack is a longtime Summit County ski patroller and snow safety technician working at two resorts with large-scale avalanche mitigation programs. Jack talks today about some ideas having to do with temporal variability within the snowpack. If this talk gets you excited, get in touch with Jack to help him gather some data on the subject. It was great to sit down with Jack and offer him the opportunity to use the podcast as a platform to share some of these theories and ideas, as well as share with the community about his career as a longtime ski patroller. Here we go with Jack Rupel. All right, well, Jack, thanks for making the time to sit down with me today. Um, we just—I just met Jack yesterday at the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop that was going on in Breckenridge, Colorado, here, and uh, he he agreed to sit down and talk about some of his experiences in the snow and avalanche world. So, Jack, I was hoping you could just introduce yourself and give us your background and and how you entered into the world of snow and avalanches.
0: All right, I'm currently a uh, avalanche forecaster for the Col- uh, Copper Mountain Ski Patrol, and yeah. Prior to that, I was an avalanche technician for the Breckenridge Ski Patrol, uh, going back to the winter of 83, 84, and before that, I was a ski instructor, Nordic ski instructor for Eldora in Colorado, and I learned to ski in Yosemite National Park, where I lived, and was taught to ski by uh, Bev Johnson, who was one of the original team, women's team to climb El Capitan, and uh, skied the backcountry Yosemite and survived that with almost no knowledge of uh, avalanches or travel in avalanche terrain, and that was before many people had transceivers and, Sometimes when we were in uh, avalanche terrain, we would ski with a uh, avalanche cord, just a knotted piece of of cord that would uh, show how far you were buried if it stayed on the surface.
1: Wow! So, so you were you learned to ski in Yosemite Valley,
0: yeah? Uh, yeah, we go up to the uh, Glacier Point road and uh, drive to the end of the road and. Uh, ski out from there, uh, go to, uh, hike up uh, Snow Creek, and then ski out into the Tuolumne Meadows area. And I had a, a twin sister that worked at Mammoth Mountain at the time, and every once in a while we would ski across the, the Divide, uh, ski across the Sierras, and take a shortcut. From Yosemite to Mammoth, uh, that was a 510 mile drive during the winter, and about 47 miles of skiing.
1: Wow! Did you where did you grow up? Were you growing up? Uh, in California? suburb of
0: San Francisco. Okay, cool.
1: And then, how did you make your way to Summit County?
0: Uh, my twin sister moved out here, and I followed her out and got a got a job here. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, I was working for the concessionaire in Yosemite National Park for several years, and uh, I uh, came out and found work and and skied just about every day and worked nights as a cook, and uh, by the time I got into ski patrolling and uh, the ski resort here was one quarter the size it is now, uh, here at Breckenridge and worked my way into the being an avalanche technician for the ski resort. And during the time I worked there, the 31 years I worked there, the avalanche terrain is probably five or six times larger than it was when I first started. So I worked at implementing uh, procedures, protocols, uh, expanding terrain, uh, daily uh, weather briefings, what route briefings, setting people up with uh, how many charges they might need for their routes, uh, you know, instructions on where to where to go and what to do, and uh, setting up boundaries during the spring and fall. Uh, just making sure that as the ski resort expanded, we could keep as much going as possible, provide a good product to the guests.
1: Alright. So what did the forecasting and mitigation program look like when you started there? And then maybe talk about how with the expansion of terrain, some of that some of the evolution of that that you helped to implement?
0: Well, a limited amount of people were involved in avalanche work and they kind of fought over who would who would go out on the route and who would be able to To throw the explosives and uh, there wasn't enough work to go around and now I would imagine that there's plenty of that to go around and you're probably one of the few if you don't go out and help on routes and and, uh, um, have a blast permit and and, uh, there was probably 200 acres of avalanche terrain uh, and now probably out of the over 3,000 acres of the ski resort, probably half of that is avalanche terrain. So uh, there at Breckenridge uh, for 31 years and then I moved over and started to work at Copper and got into the avalanche work there and kind of had a, a rebirth of my interest in the snow and in the uh in what's going on with the snow uh we talked a little bit yesterday about uh the uh temporal variation in snow and originally uh maybe 20 years ago there was a a bunch of peer review papers and information out about uh spatial variability in snow and it's really hard or impossible to understand the spatial variability in snow unless you start to look at the temporal variability in snow. And I think that snow, as it, uh, as it develops, forms, and changes, goes through uh, a diurnal uh, sine wave of uh, snow stability or snow irritability. And that uh, when the sine wave is steep, the snow is less stable, more irritable. And as the sine wave flattens out, it's less irritable and more stable. And that when you get a forecast, say, from uh, for Colorado from the CIIC, you get a regional forecast that gives you a uh, almost what's like a crux of a Of the avalanche danger so in climbing uh, you have the the hardest move on the on the hardest part of your route is the rating of the climb Uh, in uh, whitewater the river rating is the hardest spot on the hardest rapid of the at the hardest time and with a uh, regional avalanche forecast, sometimes it's broken down into aspect and elevation, uh, above treeline, uh, whatever. And uh, otherwise, there's not a lot of information there. And if you travel in the backcountry, or uh, if you uh, travel in avalanche terrain, or if you work in avalanche terrain... Uh, it seems to me that you need to have a slope-scale forecast that you make personally for any time you travel in avalanche terrain. And that it's possible to do that these days because you have uh, Google Earth, you can see what's there before the snow fell. Uh, you have CalTopo. that you can look and find what the aspect and slope angles are. And you can understand the uh, the run you're going to take on a slope scale uh, by doing a little bit of research before you go somewhere. And it it's also, uh, I think, the temporal variability in the snow. You can figure some of that out by... Uh, the warming and cooling of the snow, and some of that is the energy balance that uh, long wave and short wave radiation, the latent heat, the convective forces that are going on if there's if there's no wind, instability seems to me to grow a little bit faster in the absence of wind so within the snowpack there's no wind uh, you have the depth horror growth you have uh, facets growing in different layers in the snowpack and when the wind is uh, non-existent or low you have uh, the growth of surface hoar that later gets buried and uh, you know in the absence of wind instability grows if you look at the energy balance of the long wave and short wave radiation uh, say on a east-facing slope or a southeast-facing slope the amount of sun and the amount of solar energy and uh, you know, long-wave, short-wave radiation that is going on to a slope, uh, you may have hours each day of, of sunlight and that warming and that um, energy balance being fairly high. If uh, you have a, a slope that faces, say, northeast, you may have, instead of thousands of hours of sun over the course of a winter, you may have a couple hundred hours of direct sunlight. And a slope facing northeast might not see direct sunlight until uh, around Valentine's Day. And I think that over the years, I've always tried to figure out why there's an avalanche cycle right around av- uh, Valentine's Day on uh, north-facing slopes, or at least it seems to me that that that's the case. And it's not that the snow has finally gotten deep enough to do that. It's that the snow has – that snow on those aspects, the shaded, normally shaded aspects, uh, are uh, getting – the first time that they're getting near-freezing – because of the the sun, they're finally getting uh, near or out freezing, and then cooling back back down below. So they they go through a like a seasonal irritability uh, to go back to the the daily or diurnal uh, irritability of the snow. And the uh, as the the day goes by, the ambient air temperature isn't necessarily a great method of figuring out. Uh, how much the snow is warming. Uh, if the sky is cloudy like it is today, you have that long wave radiation bouncing back and forth and a greenhouse effect warming up the snow quite a bit. Uh, you have the surface temperatures rising. And when you do have those rising, and then later when that long long wave uh, loss that you get at night, say it clears up at night, uh, then you have a, a distinct cooling of the, the snow. So there's that steep part of the sine wave both coming up and going down, where the snow to me seems to be more irritable than it it is, say, midday or even the middle of the night. Uh, after years of doing avalanche mitigation work with explosives and ski cutting, uh, we would go out sometimes at dawn and, and uh, shoot slide paths. And other times we'd go out at 9.30 uh, when it was convenient to get up the hill. Uh, we'd shoot avalanche or, uh, as soon it was, as it was light enough out to see what was going on. Sometimes in preparation for storms, we'd shoot it in the afternoon or even uh, right before dark, as the resort was closing, and you see different results depending upon the time of day and the the aspect of the of the path. And I think that's what gave me the idea of that sine wave of irritability that happens uh, both going up and coming down. that the energy balance in the snowpack explains, in each specific spot explains that irritability and it it possibly explains the reason why we have post control releases is that you do your control work while that sine wave is relatively flat and where that sine wave is relatively steep is when you open the slope and or you go back for a second lap on something to go put another ski cut in Uh, when you uh, say you uh, have a spot you're skiing in the backcountry, and you go up on your first run, and you ski something, and it's just fantastic—it's blower powder, everything's everything's perfect—and you decide, well, that was so good, I'm going to go back and get another lap. So you ski back up and around. It takes you a while to get there, and you're you get there for your second lap where it's that st- steep part of the sine wave. The the snow is more irritable and uh, you can feel in the snow changes in the snow the skiing quality which would be uh, a reflection possibly of the elastic modulus of the snow the uh, density of the snow and uh, you can feel it under your skis how the snow changes and if you do four or five laps on something you notice that that the snow changes drastically uh, as the sun hits the sky, the sun hits the snow, the sun leaves the snow, and the sun leaves the sky, that the snow goes through distinct changes. And just like when we rate a rapid by its most difficult section of its most difficult rapid, uh, a lot of times snow responds like a rapid where if you think of uh, doing your personal forecast for the run that you take, that you should forecast in four dimensions. And I like to think of it also as four dimensions with some estrogen. (laughs) And I'll explain that a little bit later. But in four dimensions, what I mean is that uh, the snow surface that you're skiing on sits on top of different materials, and different terrain features so a lot of times if you have aspen leaves that have fallen on the ground pine needles that have fallen on the ground uh, um, long grasses and short grasses that bend over as the snow uh, glides uh, create really smooth surfaces for the snow to to move on and then there's rock piles willows uh, uh, almost anything that's rough, uh, it doesn't perform in the same way. It doesn't move in the same way. So you have snow that the dominant feature of it is glide-based snow. And you have other snow uh, terrain features and material that cause creep-based snow. So the creep moves within the layers of the snowpack, and the glide moves along the, the ground, along the surface of the ground. And where those come together, you have uh, stress concentrations that are the spots that are likely uh, initiation points for uh, crack initiation, crack propagation, collapse, and avalanches happening. So, if you think of snow comes in three different forms, that, in any given spot, you have the snow that's pinned, say the snow on a ridge line that's uh, wind blown fine grained snow very thick it doesn't go through the same temperature gradient process uh, because of the thickness of the snow, and the density of the snow makes it so the vapor transport isn't as great. You have that snow that's pinned to the ridge lines and pinned to uh, uh, pillows of snow where stuff is side loaded cross loaded uh, that is maybe a reservoir for later avalanches but not in itself necessarily a big a big threat and then you have the snow just below that that and beside that that is either creep or glide ba- the glide dominant snow you mean just
1: off of ridge line yeah
0: so you have, you have your weather instruments a lot of times on the ridgelines. So you're getting wind readings that are, in your forecast, that are the ridgetop winds. And just below that, you have a wind rotor or you have the wind decreasing. And in the absence of wind, I believe instability grows. So, Aside it, from
1: wind slabs, of course.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the wind slabs are... are kind of isolated to to certain spots uh, in certain directions, and you can usually figure those out. But the wind is vastly different over complex terrain. So complex terrain creates uh, a complex snowpack. And when we get a regional avalanche forecast where it says considerable, uh, if you're going to be skiing avalanche terrain, you take that into account. But then you make, you should make a, a personal slope-scale forecast uh, that takes into account the areas that where it, it's been windy, where the snow is so thick that the, if there is a persistent weak layer, if it does exist, are you in a spot where your skis or snowboard or snowmobile or will penetrate it deep enough to, uh, to trigger something? Uh, if uh, if that's the the case where the energy of your uh, snow sport is enough to trigger a slide, uh, you know you you figure that out. You can figure some of that out in advance. Uh, and if you look at uh, I think it's Caltopo it has a uh, has a feature in it where you can look at how much sunlight when the sun will hit the, hit the area you're at and when it, when it will leave. Right, you can
1: scroll for a given day mm-hmm. for the year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And you can do it for any spot that you might want to ski. So you can see when the, the sun's going to hit the slope, when the sun's going to leave the slope. And I think that right around those two, shortly after the sun hits the slope and, and shortly after the sun leaves the slope that the the energy balance delta and the change in the snowpack is enough to uh, create uh, spots of irritability or unstable spots in the snow and that something isn't it's not a a flat line for how uh, how stable or unstable the snow is it's changing as time goes by and if you do a little study in advance, you can understand a little bit better where the uh, where that temporal change in the snow takes place. I don't have I read uh, peer review papers as much as possible, and I don't have any concrete evidence of that. But part of participating in the uh, the Avalanche Hour podcast was to to have some people get back to me and try to uh, help uh, come up with some concrete evidence of this uh, diurnal irritability, warming and cooling, uh, uh, temporal variation in the snow. Uh, As I said before, 20 years ago, it was really popular to there were many studies of spatial variability in snow, and the spatial variability studies. Uh, some of them would go out and do three hundred uh, roche blocks. They would do seven hundred uh, compression tests. They would do uh, an incredible amount of of study of the uh, of uh, the stability over. Uh, an area now. In order to do seven hundred Roche block tests or three hundred Roche block tests, uh, it takes a considerable amount of time. So some of that is going to be going on when the sun's coming up, when the sun hasn't hit the slope yet, when the sun has is in uh, directly on the slope, and shortly after it's left, and you know close to close to dark. So. Uh, I don't think that most of the uh, spatial variability studies that were done—they log that information, what time of day it is, and what the sky conditions are. Uh, but it would be, to me, entertaining to go back and look at some of these and figure out when the, uh, what time of day those were done, and if there was an influence on the. Uh, stability, the slope stability, and the variation within uh, within a certain area according to uh, the net energy that's, that's hitting the snow. There's instruments that the, uh, uh, NOAA has uh, scattered around the state uh, that sh- show the amount of sky cover or visibility and uh, uh, you could scrape some of that information into, the, into your uh, database and figure out uh, if you have a greenhouse effect going on where the, the long wave is bouncing back and forth and warming up the snow. You could figure out whether the sky is clear at night uh, to see if uh, the uh, surface war growth potential is there. Uh, there's a lot of things that... Uh, research that's been done in the past could uh, serve us well now that we understand or think we know a little bit more about the snow. And currently I'm, I'm working with a, a program uh, called uh, Anaconda. And it uh, works with a thing called Jupiter Notebooks and the uh, Jupyter Notebook is a uh, programming language. Uh, you know, for me, it looks like it could be a replacement for something like uh, PowerPoint, uh, Q- uh, Keynote, uh, you know, a word processing program, uh, because y- you could have available online to, for anybody who's interested uh your raw data from research that you're doing you could have uh your statistics math uh physics you could have uh your graphs you could have all that that would potentially be available to anybody who wanted to look at it to make sure that the snow science that you're doing is a repeatable thing uh, a while back, the Atlantic magazine came out with a uh, article that talked about almost or majority of scientific papers are not reproducible. And so, uh, right now, if I want to find a peer review paper on snow science, uh, I look online, and and some is some of it's behind a paywall. Some of it's in a journal that's unavailable or expensive to buy. And with something like uh, a a Jupyter Notebook, uh, sponsored on, I think it's uh, GitHub, that you would be able to have uh, the raw data, the the way that you did your work, your methods, uh, the equipment you used, you would be able to have the... uh, the math, uh, physics, calculus, whatever that you, you used in coming to your conclusion and you would be able to have, uh, other people, uh, once again, peer review what you do and,
1: or contribute to the data set.
0: Yeah. Contribute to the data set or iterate on what you've already done with it. Maybe look at it in a different way or use another piece of information like, uh, like I said, with the uh, spatial variability, you would uh, be able to take some of the local weather uh, information uh, of uh, the sky cover and be able to uh, crunch those numbers in a different way. Take and, and data mine uh, information that's already out there.
1: Say on Snow Pilot or or something like that.
0: Yeah, you know the the Snow Pilot with. What is it? Probably over nine thousand uh, pits available that you could have uh, take a look at different uh, different places with that uh, energy balance uh, estimates that you make and see if there's a difference in the stability tests that are happening uh, as a result of that, and see if that that sine wave of irritability actually exists.
1: And that, and that would have to be at the same location or, or very close to the same location, yeah?
0: Yeah. And, you know, in a case like, uh, oh, the snow pits that Breckenridge would dig mm-hmm. and uh, the snow pits that uh, Copper Mountain would dig or some of the backcountry users in the 10-mile range, that uh, there's a lot of information coming in that's the same... Uh, the same area the same time uh the CIC forecasters that are that are going out in uh in the Summit County area and you know other places uh the Tetons um you know that that there's a lot of information that's available that uh over the same time period and over the same season that that you'd be able to to mine for a little bit more information
1: yeah so so how do we how do we move forward from just talking about this, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> well, some yeah, some you, of that may be propose? just
0: getting uh, getting in touch with me and and uh, trying to set up something that's uh, uh, that takes it the, to the next step. Mm-hmm. You know, some of that may be uh, getting in touch with uh, Doug Chabot and and uh, approaching things in in that way. It might be. Uh, other resort uh, avalanche forecasters uh, or even some people from the state. I think there's a, a large body of information with the uh, uh, avalanche accident and, and fatality statistics where you would have you'd have a, a pin down time of when something took place and you'd have a distinct location. And that you could go back and, and take a look at the site in the fall or in the uh, late summer and see what the uh, ground material and the ground features are. And you could mine the local weather data to, to figure out exactly the, the time and what that energy balance uh, measurement would be for the, the time the slide was triggered. If you think of people that are, are hurt and, and killed in slides, uh, we dis- discussed this a little bit yesterday, that uh, you look at a, a fracture line, and it can be enormous. And, and uh, the avalanches that injure and kill people aren't necessarily triggered from near that fracture line. They're, they're triggered from somewhere else. And a fracture line is uh, the, uh, the end point. And you think of, you drop into an avalanche path, and you think this is the starting zone. Well, this is the start of your ski run, or this is the start of your avalanche route. But it's not necessarily the place that the avalanche starts. It almost never starts right there where the the fracture line is. So we could maybe change the name of the fracture line to the the end line. (laughs) Or, um, you know, the start zone to the to the end zone. Mm-hmm. And that it's where that uh, propagation of the collapse and crack uh, uh, goes uh, vertical or slope normal and, and hits the surface. It's where the snow was so strong that it didn't slide anymore. So when you go out and you do a fracture line profile or you do uh, uh, profile in the... Um, the stock wall or you do a, a profile in the flanks of a of a slide you're seeing the areas that were so strong that they didn't go anywhere and that's where that's where it ended so uh in trying to understand the spot that triggered an avalanche uh that's a a lot more a lot more difficult uh, there was a a time when I went to uh I was on an avalanche uh mitigation route in uh, the lake shoots at Breckenridge with uh, three other people and we shot our way down the ridge and we got to a certain point where paths are separated enough we could send somebody down one of the paths, so he skied down uh, before the the sun had really Uh, hit the snow all that much. And we spent probably another hour continuing down the ridgeline, shooting our way down steep uh, avalanche paths. And we got to the end and I I thought, boy, it is really warm. It has really warmed up a lot. And the sun was directly hitting the path where the original uh, skier had gone. And I asked uh, one of the guys I was with, Andy, to go back up and just take a quick look at that area and see what he thought. And he climbed back up and didn't ski the steepest part of the lake chutes. He skied the uh, more gentle part, but it was still enough to slide. And went uh, either spooning or crossing the tracks of the skier that had already gone. And when he did that, he triggered a slide that carried him 450 feet down the hill, and fractured his fibula. And why did he go over? Why, when he went over the same exact spot, did he trigger it then? And the original skier didn't trigger the slide. And I think that that that's uh, one of the uh, indicators that there's uh, a fluctuation, a temporal variability in the irritability of the snow. And years ago, there was a cat skiing operation or a cat skiing trip outside of the boundaries of Wolf Creek where uh, one, of the, one of the skiers was killed. And I think it was uh, patrollers that worked at Wolf Creek at the time. And there's a video on YouTube of, of the slide happening. And he's probably the fifth or sixth person to ski this small, uh, relatively small snowfield and uh, there's tracks on both sides of him and when he skis down he gets two or three turns in and the slide initiates and carries him down into the trees and and kills him but uh, I'll never forget looking at the video and seeing all the the skier and the tracks slide down the hill and they're intact for a long time you know and why didn't one of the other skiers trigger that particular side and it's likely because not only the terrain features but the uh, the changes in the energy balance was a, was enough to uh, make the snow more irritable where he skied over likely skied over a spot where the persistent weak layer was close enough to the surface that his weight actually was able to collapse or, or trigger that spot and where the other skiers that went by that persistent weak layer was likely deep enough so that they didn't, they didn't find that spot. Mm-hmm. And as the, the day goes by, once that many people skied that slope, it's possible that the, uh, the snow changed enough so it would uh, transmit and propagate the energy of the of the skier to a greater extent. So it's uh, a combination of the spatial variability and the temporal variability that makes the snow irritable enough to cause it to to slide. If the forecast that we give, even as a, a slope scale forecast, Uh, For ourselves, if uh, the snow was always the same and not changing, then it would be a lot more predictable. And I think that the, the death toll from avalanches would be 10 or 15 times what it is now. That people survive skiing avalanche terrain in high hazard forecasts uh, cause that they're in a they're doing it at a time when it's not as irritable as some other time, sure. And that some people are just un- unfortunate. you know, there are times when it's just uh, it's a, just a no-go situation where the avalanche hazard is high enough that it's just uh, that sine wave is is, relatively flat the whole way and it's always you know it's always bad but there are other times when uh... it's a variation of uh... uh, the hazard varies greatly over over time and like i said i still don't have an idea of how to um, how to figure this out some of its the i don't have the the calculus ski- skills, the uh, the trigonometry, the uh, uh, the physics, in order to figure that out, uh, and you know some of it is we, we know a lot more than we used to, and there's a lot more travel going on. Uh, there's a lot of uh, avalanches that are uh, triggered. Uh, while video is going on, and uh, the stuff that 's uh, on video there's a oh, there 's methods to amplify the motion of a video and see where the snow is cracking and where it 's initiating and where it's uh, where it 's collapsing uh, I believe the program is called uh, motion, or the technique is called motion magnification. Mm. And uh, that we can actually interpret and see a little bit more of what's going on. I spent a while looking at every uh, YouTube video of an avalanche that I could find. And uh, I figured out that they're not triggered from... Where the fracture line is, they're triggered from down below, and that very seldom is that uh, our avalanche is triggered triggered high in a path. They're triggered somewhere below the, uh, you know, down where the the snow is shallow enough so the persistent weak layer is affected by your your skis, your snowboard, right? And uh, over over time. Uh, the 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 more time you spend in avalanche terrain, uh, I think the more that you see little oddities like that. And then, like I said, it, it explains why post-control releases happen. Uh, it explains why, uh, well, it not necessarily explains, but it, it may point out that sometimes uh, A resort operator may do its control work and uh mitigation work and then open the terrain right when the snow is becoming its most irritable
1: uh well that's kind of that's kind of the trick with especially operating at ski resorts right and running a mitigation program is we're confined we're not on the snow schedule right we're on the human schedule (laughs) and so maybe um it's it's certainly difficult to continue to sell tickets when you can't open some of that terrain right i'm sure you've dealt with that a lot throughout
0: your career yeah and i never really felt pressure from either breckenridge or copper to Mm -hmm. open things uh i always felt like the the only pressures came with from within my peers and those were personal pressures to try to get as much open as possible mm-hmm. and try to provide a nice product to people, and that those pressures may be significantly more than any uh, management pressure that we would just ignore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we want to we want to get people we want to get skiing and we want to get out there skiing if we can.
1: Yeah. Um, do, you, do, you, do you have any advice for younger patrollers that are just getting in the game and you've had a long career in snow mitigation, avalanche mitigation, and, and ski patrolling? you got any advice for
0: younger folks? Yeah, I think that, the uh, as I mentioned earlier, that, that forecast on a slope scale in four dimensions with estrogen. Yeah, the, and let's the, dive with, in the, that a little more. The With estrogen, um, uh, a little history on this. My, my mother, who just turned 97, uh, flew as a radio operator in the aircraft in the Second World War. And uh, she's always been a big influence on me. And I've learned to ski from uh, Bev Johnson, who was a... a a fantastic climber and the first women's team to, to go up El Cap. Uh, when I got on ski patrol at Breckenridge, my mentors were uh, Mary Logan, uh, who is my supervisor, and uh, her husband, Nick Logan, is uh, one of the first forecasters for the C.I.C. And she was a, a fantastic mentor for ski patrolling and snow. And uh, also I had two, two others that helped me, uh, a nurse, Deb Crook, and uh, um, another patroller, Sue O'Connor, that, that took me under their wing and taught me to be a, uh, a good patroller. And uh, when I built vortex generators to uh, triangular-shaped wings to build tip vortices to passively remove snow from cornices in uh in the lake shoots at breckenridge and in horseshoe bowl uh the original uh paper that came from was from rennie lang uh that got presented at the issw in sun river oregon and uh Right now, in my avalanche forecasting, I use uh, an Excel spreadsheet uh, developed by one of Bruce Jameson's grad students for her thesis, uh, Laura, I'm not sure, last name, Baclan, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, it, I use it to predict uh, how much warming during the course of a day you might see. Uh, in the surface snow and uh, just under the surface of the snow. And so when I think back, I think that the, the there's also a, um, a woman who did a study of uh, explosives use and uh, snow stability tests before and after and long after uh, explosives used on a slope and found that there's a time after the use of explosives that the snow is uh, less stable before it centers back up and, and becomes stable. So uh, I look at some of the landmark work that's being done and been done in, in snow science, and a lot of it comes from women. And sometimes there's a little bit too much testosterone in the decision-making that happens uh, on avalanche routes. Uh, it's a, on some of the hiking routes, uh, the longer uh, routes, there's uh, a race to the top, and then uh, you're anaerobic and your mind isn't working all that great, and you have some important decisions to make while you're anaerobic. And I think if you do your due diligence before your, before your trip and understand the terrain and understand the weather and understand the slope angles... The aspect and what the snow uh, how the snow might change due to that energy balance change, uh, that uh, you know that if you if you go at it with a little bit of estrogen, <laughs> you might make some better decisions mm. because for the number of of women in the avalanche community, uh, you know like we were at the at seesaw yesterday and we saw um, you know hundreds of people there and, and uh, maybe four or five percent of them were women and uh, that some of the landmark research is, is done by women and, and I think some of the better decision-making could be could be made by women. So put a little estrogen in your forecast. That's good advice from Jack Rubel. Um, Jack, how can
1: people get in touch with you if they want to take part in some of this this research? You you haven't exactly said that you're going to m- move forward with with some project like this, uh-huh. um, with gathering the data. But maybe maybe some other folks within the community would like to to jump on board, and maybe that's enough to get some data sets going. As Carl Berkland said, you know. Give me the data, all
0: <laughs> right? <That's, laughs> well, you know, probably the easiest way is uh, uh, jack4of5, number four and number five, at gmail.com.
1: jack four five four of 5 4 of 5. 4 of 5 at gmail.com. And I'll put that in the show notes as well so people can find that there and get in touch with you. And And uh, I really like these ideas. I really like the, the concept of talking about snow as being irritable. And changing over time, um, and space. You talked about the four dimensions, so the thing about it in four dimensions. So, I was hoping you could just cover that again. I think that's well, I mean, really it know. just
0: uh, you know you have uh, a point in space that would be represented by the by three dimensions, and the fourth dimension would be time. Right. So, uh, you know, snow is is responds kind of like a a rapid that you have the Um, You have the fast water, the eddy lines, the slow water behind the rocks, and then the rocks themselves. And the rocks are kind of a constant, uh, and the others are moving around depending upon the water level. Well, the snow kind of responds the same way, that at changing water levels, those eddies and those fast water uh, change over time. And that uh, the stress concentrations that happen within... The snow uh, are the likely trigger points, uh, uh, fracture initiation points, collapse points that that uh, develop into avalanches. And it, the more you understand about the individual topography, so forecasting on that slope scale becomes becomes vital. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, th- there's a Possibility that that we can do that better than we ever could before. And uh, there's the Avitek probe. There's the Lyle probe. Um, there's uh, Snow MicroPen, which it would be nice if the Snow MicroPen uh, was open sourced and made available for everybody to that wanted to to build the thing. Uh, for less expensive cost than what it costs to acquire a snow micropen. Mm. Uh, that way the amount of data for research would be incredible and open it up to a lot more users. But, um, I, you know, there's all sorts of different projects to do in, in the snow and, and around snow. Uh, Ski-binding technology hasn't changed much in the last uh, 50 years that it's still ski bindings are a torque-based unit with a lateral release on the toe and an upward release on the heel. And that uh, the torque great enough to cause an ACL tear is uh, often uh, the to- uh, more torque is needed to pull a ski off than to cause that ACL tear. And that in modern cell phones right now, we have... Uh, accelerometers and magnetometers that are small and don't use much power that uh, it might be possible to have uh, sensors on your body that would show when you're in a position of weakness where your seat is behind your knees or your seat is in back your heels and uh, that uh, that the binding with uh, uh, upward release on the toe and a lateral release on the heel uh, could uh, cut down the number of ACL injuries that you know from skiing over the years. That you either know somebody that has an ACL injury, but uh, or somebody that will have one. And uh, out of that room yesterday at seesaw, that uh, I imagine there were quite a few bad knees in that group. Uh, so. The, Binding technology hasn't changed. Our ability to communicate information to our peers is is much advanced. And like I said, uh, using uh, Jupyter notebooks and the uh, program Anaconda to to uh, disseminate information and you know is much easier than it used to be. You don't have to, list, to listen to some old old man ramble on about uh, all sorts of uh, off off track and rat hole. Uh, information to get what you need you can you can look it up or you can find it easier as time goes by and there's a lot of us that uh will soon be leaving the the uh, avalanche and ski industry and uh, there's a lot of information that's that's sits that's there that shouldn't be lost when somebody leaves it should be available and uh, and used uh What is it Wisdom is the name we give our mistakes.
1: <laughs> I
0: like that, and if we uh if we can carry on and pass that information on to the to the new people uh without boring them to tears <laughs> maybe somebody's somebody's life gets saved or somebody gets saved from uh injury yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jack and and uh,
1: your passion for snow and avalanches is, is completely evident by just sitting down and talking to you. Well, I could tell yesterday, just talking to you for a couple minutes. Um, but I appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing some of these thoughts and, and ideas that you've had. And, and I'm sure your thirst for knowledge and, and figuring the phenomenon of snow and avalanches is, is ever-present throughout your whole life. Um, so that's super evident right now as we sit down, and, and I appreciate your time and, and sharing with the community. Um, I hope the community reaches out to you and, and we, can, we can all work at, at gathering some data on some of these ideas. Thanks for the time. All right, cheers Jack. it hope you enjoyed that one i'm gonna keep it short and sweet here as the candle is being burned at both ends big thanks to tas gazex and 10 barrel brewing for helping make this podcast happen please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on thanks to mike t for the artwork you the man t music today was it's just a ride by grammatic and pangolin by sun squabby made possible through the permission of the artists. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.